This is Andy. Welcome to the Sprinkler Nerd Podcast. So glad to have you guys along with us today. Now, depending on when you're listening to this, I am recording it as one of the very first episodes to be released. And as such, I wanted to bring one of my good friends and industry leaders onto the show. His name is Art Elmers. And Art and I first met way back in 2003 when I was working for a large irrigation and landscape contractor in Maryland. Art works as the district sales manager for Netifim, which is a drip irrigation company out of Fresno, California. And you have likely heard of Netifim. Netifim is sort of the Kleenex brand, if you will, of drip. Every time you see brown drip tubing, most people refer to that as Netifim tubing, even though, of course, Rainbird and Hunter and many other manufacturers make brown drip tubing. Netifim was sort of the pioneer of drip irrigation. And Art is a longtime industry expert. I use him as a resource all the time. And he and I actually worked together for a couple of years when I was positioned out on the Great Lakes for Netifim covering, I don't know, maybe 13 to 15 states back then. And uh, Art and I have kept in touch ever since. He is an instructor for the Irrigation Association, and I believe he sits on the education board, which means he helps to write the training material, the exams, and the answers to the exam questions. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to my good friend, Art Elmers. If you are an irrigation professional, old or new, who designs, installs, or maintains high-end residential, commercial, or municipal properties, and you wanna use technology to improve your business, to get a leg up on your competition, even if you're an old school irrigator from the days of hydraulic systems, this show is for you. All right. Well, Art, thanks for joining the Sprinkler Nerd podcast. Happy to have you on the show today. And, you know, I consider myself a nerd, but nerds have to learn from other nerds. And I have learned a ton from you. So if there's another nerd out there that's more nerdy than me, it is you. So happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, from one nerd to another. Yes. <laughs> What I like to do is I know you have a, a deep and rich history in this in this industry and have had a lot of experience, you know, over the years. So I kind of like to roll it back to the beginning of your journey and kind of hear how you got started and, you know, what tipped you off to this industry and where you began. Well, it was it was real easy, actually. Uh, my father was a golf course superintendent in northern New Jersey. And in Jer New Jersey, when you're 14, you can actually get working papers to work on a on a golf course. So, of course, you're sort of drafted at 14. And he also was part owner of a irrigation sprinkler installation company. And so I started working weekends and nights and stuff like that for him part-time while I was in, even in high school. I took my first design course when I was 14 and basically uh, worked for him for summers and weekends through, throughout the year. And then went to college for engineering, swearing I would never be in this industry. So, of course, here I am. After college, I always did his, uh, did his service work and his design work. And, and basically, my brothers, as they grew up, joined the company. And back in around the mid-80s, actually the early 80s, I was one of the first people to actually take the certified irrigation design certification from the IA. I remember taking the class and exam 
down at the Jacksonville Airport Holiday Inn uh, with about eight other people from around the country and Canada. And that was one of the first groups that took the exam. So um, I was certified both commercial and residential. And that was my first certification. In about mid-80s, uh, I, started, uh, I started a position working for, uh, I, had a, I saw an ad in, a, in uh, our local newsletter for the Irrigation Association. Someone was looking for a design engineer. And I rattled off my resume. And the next thing I know, I started working for a distributor in, in uh, Maryland and the D.C. area. And then through time, moved around from a couple of distributors, eventually moving back to my, my home area of North New Jersey. And for the last 17 years, I've been working for a manufacturer. So mm-hmm. it's been a long journey. I'm, through that time, too, I was also an a, uh, instructor for the Irrigation Association and then became a supervising instructor for the Irrigation Association. And, and in the last uh, six years, I've been on the National Certification Board with last year being chair. And now I'm past chair of the uh, of the committee of the board. Awesome. So if somebody um, wants to get a leg up, can they slip you a few bucks to get all the answers? Is that how this works? <laughs> yes, you can send all payments to. No, I I always tell people I'm the I'm one of the bastards now that writes the questions for the test. But right. I'll be honest with you. You know, one of the things, one of the reasons I I consented to be on the board was culturally there are so many different ways in this country that people install irrigation. The West Coast is different in many ways from the Northeast, for instance. And one of the one of the things I saw was an opportunity to make sure that the Northeast had representation on the, the questions and on what was being asked of our contractors. And I think it's a good mix of people from all parts of the country on the board to to represent all the different ways that that things that people put stuff in. Okay. Okay. And awesome. I'm not yeah. going to I'm not going to say there's a right way or a wrong way here because there's <laughs> just I've different learned, ways. Yeah, there's just different ways. But. Yeah, we could argue PVC and poly you know, all so day long. There's no, yeah. there no right or wrong answer, just different. It's right. The funniest thing on that that comment is when I was down in Maryland, we used to have a field day down there and we used to have we were right in that cusp that area where there was the transition between poly for laterals and PVC for laterals. And what would happen was we used to have a competition between companies on how quick they could put in a zone, either PVC or poly. And it was, believe it or not, very competitive. I mean, it was very close every time. And But the funny thing was, is after they were done and after that competition, we would simply ask them to switch. So the guys that normally use poly would use PVC and the guys that normally use PVC would do a poly zone and then watch them and see how how fast they put a zone in. And that was always a, a little bit of fun out there in the field. Gosh. Yeah. No people, once you, once you learn something then, and you know how to do it, that's of course going to be the best way because the best way is always my way or your way. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've been doing this a long time and of course I've always known you, you know, in your Netafim role. And um, I think you and I met in probably around Oh four or three, something, something somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, so 17 years, you know, in the specifically in the drip irrigation industry, kind of like to unpack that a little bit and just maybe have you talk to us about, you know, kind of maybe that 10,000 foot view of, of drip as a whole, maybe a little bit of how does it differ from the East Coast to the West Coast and where has it been and where is it now and 
you know, just kind of a, let's, let's get into that. Well, you know, there's always been a little bit of a debate. I thought it's kind of interesting. I work for an Israeli company, of course, Netafim. And Netafim, we've always felt that we've been, we were the inventors of drip in Israel back in 1965. But there were a couple of point source types of drip out there too. So, so when we talk about drip, we talk about primarily point source, which are basically your button emitters, things like that, plugged onto a piece of pipe where the water drips out of the emitter, or line source, where basically it's already built into a tubing and pre-spaced, et cetera, and water drips out of the emitter. It's interesting that, that as, a, as an industry, we sort of developed two different cultural practices. The uh, West Coast was primarily point source when they used drip early on, and very specifically for individual plants. In the East, we, I always attribute to denser plantings, we, we really saw inline develop a lot more. And that was the cultural difference for so many years. You know, you could, you could see, you know, millions of feet of inline going in the east, and you can see millions of feet of, of blank tubing with point source emitters going out, uh, typically the Midwest to the west. And, and you still see pockets of that in both places. However, the, the southwest and, the, and the, the west has has really taken to inline over the past few years, and I'm seeing mm. inline as being the dominant type of drip today. The other interesting thing I always thought was a riot is by point source, most of the time you're watering X amount of gallons per plant per day. And the common denominator would always be time. In other words, you would hope you would put a, a two gallon per hour emitter on a tree and you wanted to put eight gallons on that tree, you would have to run it for four hours. And what happened was is irrigation manufacturers, as they started to see drip take on more, more of, a, of a role out there, started to all of a sudden develop controllers that instead of operating certain zones and minutes, gave us the ability to go to hours, okay? So what would happen is, is if you're using your point source and you said, okay, for all the trees I'm going to do, this tree needs 10 gallons, that tree needs two. I'm going to put one two-gallon-per-hour emitter on that tree. I'm going to put five two-gallon-per-hour emitters on that tree. Therefore, it takes an hour to put down my 10 and two. So I'll set my time on the controller for one hour, all right? So when they brought those controllers east, as, as of course the controllers from the west are everywhere, all of a sudden when people started using inline in the east, they would say, oh, you've got to water for hours. I mean, because it says it's made for drip and it's specifically for hours. Well, the problem is, is inline puts in many cases water out as fast as rotor systems, rotary zones and so forth. We get up to precipitation rates or application rates of close to an inch an hour which realistically is, in many cases, double most of your rotors. So what would happen is people in the East would go ahead and basically run for multiple hours thinking that's the right way to do it, and they would typically overwater. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think the, we're finally catching up with the idea that, that you don't have to run drip for hours, primarily in the East. You just don't need that much water. And in fact, uh, you know, the, my biggest point when I teach nowadays or, or talk to people about drip is it's so much more important as to how you schedule and set your irrigation schedule for drip to, to really see the benefits and the, of, the, of the water savings of the drip system. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. and I think that, so, that's a big difference. 
So if I can uh, stop you right there. So you said a couple keywords, precipitation rate and application rate as it relates that one inch per hour. Let's dig in there a little bit because you're talking about inline tubing and there are lots of choices. So one of the things that I've seen is people just see brown tubing and, you know, they call, hey, there's that Netafim tubing. First of all, it could be from various manufacturers. However, there's a science behind the tubing with the emitters and the spacing and the row spacing. So maybe talk to us a little bit about how, you know, what is application rate of the drip? Maybe how it's determined and what are the choices? Okay. Well, basically the inline, which is what I've grown up with in the East, even though I have worked with, of course, a point source also. But inline, there's an emitter pre-spaced inside a tube, okay? So that let's say we have a half-inch tube running along and pre-spaced in it, there's a device that's attached to the inside wall of the tubing, and there's an exit hole that comes out of the device, and when the device gets water pressure to it, gets flow to it, it, it it allows a certain amount of water through and comes out the hole. So you get a drip, hence the term drip irrigation. So these things are pre-spaced at 12 inches, 18 inches, and even custom spacing if you want. Then there are different flow rates on these things. And the different flow rates, it used to be typically one or a half gallon per hour, or in the case of the Israelis, it's in liters, so it becomes 0.9 gallons per hour, 0.6 gallons per hour. Well, what we've learned is, as I mentioned before, we typically apply water faster than we really need to for most of our soils. So what happens is we've developed over time lower flow emitters, 0.4 and 0.26. And depending on your type of soil, the soil texture, whether it be clay on one end of the spectrum or a very coarse sand on the other end of the spectrum, will determine what flow rate we need to apply the water at. And again, if we apply water just like sprays on a clay clay yard, spray heads uh, doing the side yard of, with heavy clay, we know that after a few minutes you get runoff. And once you see runoff, you know that you're wasting water. Same thing with drip. We apply water using a 0.9, very tight spacing, 12-inch spacing. We place the rows 18, 12 to 18 inches apart, and all of a sudden we start to have water runoff after 10 minutes. And that's the same same situation. So depending on the soils, depending on what we're irrigating also, the type of plant material, we'll, you'll, you'll see in a catalog typically from any of the manufacturers, you'll see a recommendation on what flow rate to use first, then what spacing between the emitters in the tubing, and then what row spacing. And by following that, we're able to get closer to the basic intake rate of the soil. Now, there is one thing that's different between precipitation rate and application rate. Precipitation rate refers to what we put in the air. And there are two things out there. There's a gross precipitation rate and there's a net precipitation rate. The gross precipitation rate is what's being applied by the sprinklers. The net is what actually hits the ground. And in most cases, net is less than the gross. We lose something between it being thrown in the air and it hitting the ground. And evaporation is basically it. So Drip irrigation, since we're applying it at the root zones or below the, below the soil line or below the mulch, basically we, we reduce the amount of evaporation. So our application rate is really our net application rate because we're not losing anything to air. And uh, so that's the difference between the two terms. Okay, but, uh, okay. Yep. 
you know, so it sort of leads into the next topic that I, that I want to cover because there's some myths with it. And, you know, I've seen great success stories myself and you hear people that want to debunk this, but I wanted to talk about using subsurface drip and turf grass applications and what you've just talked about in terms of the application rate. I could see that if you misapply your either engineering of the product up front or your scheduling on the backside that, you know, in a turf grass application, you're more susceptible to causing potential damage in your plant material than if you were in a, a shrub bed environment. So let's, you know, let's unpack and talk about using subsurface in, in turf grass. Okay. Subsurface and turf. Basically, we take a look at where we try to irrigate. Okay. And in turf grass, typically our root zone, unless you have a well-developed turf, typically our root zones are shallower, right? They're tighter. They're more compact. So we we don't have as we don't have the reservoir that we would underneath our gas tank per se that we would have in a shrub bed where they've got a foot, two foot for the roots to pull water out of the soil. So we, we we're a little bit we're a little bit tighter. You know, we have to we have to be a little bit more. There's less fudge out there. So when we look at turf, right, the big thing is that we want to make sure that we apply water and it moves through the soil. Drip relies on, all drip relies on, the, the capillary action of soils, the movement of water in soils, the lateral movement and upward movement in many cases in soils. I always use this example. If you took a piece of drip and you buried it two feet below the ground and you turned the emitter on or you turned the drip on, water actually moves in all directions evenly. It's a perfect sphere. It moves upwards as far as it moves downwards and to the sides. And everybody goes, all right, you're crazy. It doesn't. It looks like a turnip. It looks like an onion shape. It goes down. Right? I said, no. Initially, it's a perfect sphere. It's when it hits field capacity, and that's the point at which the water, the soil is holding the max amount of water it can without any drainage. Up till field capacity, it'll move evenly. Once we do hit field capacity, two things take over. The first thing is, as soon as we're at field capacity and water can drain out on its own out of the soil, gravity starts to take over. And gravity starts to pull that water downward through the soil profile, okay, which is something we don't want because typically that, that moves it out of our root zone and mm-hmm. it becomes wasted. Okay, so it's, gravity takes over, but then there's also another characteristic. It's a characteristic called adhesion or cohesion. Adhesion is the attraction, is the atomic attraction between different molecules, different atoms. There's a certain there's a certain attraction that takes place, there's a bond that takes place that's tough to break. The second thing is there's also something called cohesion. Cohesion is the almost the same type of thing, but it's the attraction between the same molecules. So let's say a molecule of water here and a molecule of water next to it, there's a bond between the two of them. So as soon as gravity starts to take over and start to pull water downwards through the soil profile, because of cohesion, molecules that would normally be maybe spreading out to the sides or upwards start to follow their brothers and head south. So they all start to go down through the profile, and it's contributing to that, to that issue. So how do we stop that from happening? What do we do? Well, we could... You know, the faster you apply water, the faster the soil around it around you is going to become hitting field capacity. So what do we do? We slow that down. Mm-hmm. And that's why in many cases for a heavy soil especially, you will see us recommend a lower flow rate. 
So the time that it takes for it to hit fuel capacity is a lot greater because it's applying water at a slower rate. The sphere, if you, if you want to call it such, is getting bigger and bigger. It's spreading further to the sides, and it's actually coming up to the surface fairly easily. Okay. Then what happens is we can also do one other thing. If we've already got our drip irrigation system in and we haven't engineered it properly or whatever, right? You can also compensate for that with time. And a lot of our controllers today have that cycle soak feature, which I love so much. Because mm -hmm. I think that is really in most of our irrigation schedules, cycle soak is very important, especially with drip. Yeah. You go ahead and you cycle it, you know, you will be surprised at how far because what happens is when you, when you hit fuel capacity, or even if you don't hit fuel capacity, if you stop putting water into the into that sphere, right? What's going to happen? You still have drier soil around wet soil, and dry water will always move between wet soil and dry soil. That's the nature of soils. So what happens is we'll stop it at fuel capacity. The sphere will continue to get bigger because water will still move through capillary action into the drier soils, right? the percentage of water within that sphere now becomes lower because it's a bigger sphere, and therefore we're now below field capacity. So then what do we do? We add another shot of water, bring it up, push it out a little bit further. There are, I can give you personal examples of contractors calling me and basically saying, hey, Art, I'm running the thing five hours a night now, and I'm not getting the spread that I want. What the hell's the matter with your tubing? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, you realize you're putting out five inches of water, right? And yeah. And, you know, certainly not what we want to have happen from, from drip. So I just say, do me a favor, cut it back to half an hour and do it in three 10-minute cycles with at least an hour in between the cycles. Use cycle soak, All right? Call me, let me know how it worked out. I never get a call from these guys because I get, you know, typically it's, they, it, it works now. They don't, they right. don't have any problems. Right. So, so cycle soak really helps us. And just as a sidebar for you, Cycle soak will also help with an overhead system. For those who use primarily overhead irrigation, you can do the same thing. It acts as a buffer. If you apply a short period of water, the water has a chance to get into the ground and to move around in the soils before you add more. And then it, it really helps to prevent that movement of water, typically on an overhead system, off to the sides very quickly. Mm -hmm. so, okay. So. Yeah. So in, um, so let's say we're, you know, we led into this with a uh, subsurface turf grass, which, you know, of course, you know, knowing all this about adhesion and cohesion and soak cycle, if we wanted to have an even distribution of, of water under the grass so that the plants can, you know, ha have a, have an even distribution, it sounds like soak cycle is a must where and how is the, is the tubing installed for subsurface? And let's just use the example of, instead of saying a ball field, which yes, we've seen those before, let's use the example of maybe a high-end residential home and maybe there's some dry laid pavers in the grass, you know, and they don't want to spray them either because they don't want them wet or they don't right. want rust. And so somebody wants to water this, these odd pockets of grass using subsurface drip. Where, what would they do? How would you recommend they go about that? My, my preference, especially in a residential situation, is, is if you can put it in either before you put the lawn in, for instance, if it's a new construction, or mm -hmm. plan on, on renovating your turf. In other words, take the, so, take, take the existing turf off if you're going to renovate the, the, the turf. Take, go down five to six inches below what your finished grade is going to be. Right. 
Because the key for the key for drip and subsurface is also uniformity as to the depth of the tubing. And one of the and problems what you mean that by I, that is you, you don't want some tubing to be three inches and another pocket to be six inches because you're now your water's not uniformly spread. Is that what you mean? Yes. And also if we get up to three inches, our landscapers love to do some core aeration. Uh, and I always say, you know, we put the holes where we want them. We don't need to add any more to the tubing. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so what about depth? What's the depth of the tubing? I personally like five to six inches below grade. Because okay. that usually, if they're using a two or three inch core aerator, we got, we got space above us so they can actually go ahead and aerate if they want. Just as a note for you, the interesting thing is when you do subsurface drip, the need for aeration actually goes down because we're huh. applying the water from below. We're pulsing it from below. And we're actually keeping those pore spaces open. So, I see. so instead of packing it down with overhead, right. that right. Mean? now we're okay. So, but I like it down about five, six inches. And if you're able to take the soil off and then tack down the tubing, you can pre space your rows, make sure your rows are nice, and then skip load in some soil over top, then either mulch, I mean, either hydro mulch or sod it, and you're off to the races. Okay. You know, one of the toughest parts, especially in, small residential areas is using a vibratory plow or plowed plowed in method of putting in drip because replacing the tubing many many cases 15 18 inches the rows 18 inches apart so and we have to be accurate here so it's a little difficult to use a ditch witch or or vermeer or something like that even though a few years ago vermeer came out with a multi-bladed attachment that you could use to to vibratory plow it in Mm -hmm. the other problem is is a lot of the machines that do vibratory plow it in or plow it in are fairly large in size, and they're very difficult to maneuver around a small yard. But okay. I, think, I think we are starting to see some small individual units come out that get big individual trenches, for instance. Okay. Uh, very lightweight, very small pieces of equipment. They're starting as, as more and more subsurface drip gets into her. We're seeing you know, necessities, the mother of invention. We're seeing more of these machines starting to come onto the market. Okay. Well, and I've heard that there are certain parts of the country that either recommend it or are making it part of code to, to utilize subsurface drip and turf grass. And do you know much about those regulations well, or where that's happening? Well, yeah, what, they're, they're, not, they're not mandating drip per se, but what they're saying is they're not allowing overhead irrigation. So when you don't allow overhead irrigation, what's left? Either no uh, irrigation. Yes. Choice, either, right? either the stone mulch option or the uh or the or you just basically plan on having, you know, a strip of grass between the curb and the sidewalk be at the mercy of any any rainfall. Texas, I understand there's certain jurisdictions in Texas that, that that strip of grass between the between the curb and the sidewalk are not allowed to be overhead irrigated. Mm-hmm. Eighteen eighty one in California, I as as I understand it heavily restricts use of overhead irrigation in turf or plantings that are 15 feet wider narrower i see so you know when they when they start to when they start to restrict use of overhead in those areas it really lends itself to drip irrigation because that's okay. the, only, the only way to do it you know yeah. i don't I, I i i've been in the industry long enough as as you know that i don't sit here and i don't say that drip is the absolute answer to everything i think there are some great applications for drip but i still think there are applications that drip may not be the answer like a a good example might be if i've got a established lawn 
at a residence with a lot of very shallow rooted trees, right? If you've ever worked in that environment, you know that the roots are literally below, just below the surface. You try to put drip into that environment and it gets to be very difficult if it, uh, unless, uh, unless they're, uh, like I said before, going to when they originally installed. But mm-hmm. uh, it gets very difficult to go in after the fact. It may not be the answer for that particular right, situation. Right. And, and with anything else, you know, a good analogy that I sometimes use is, you know, the analogy of tools. So drip being a tool, point source being a tool, inline being a tool, they're all just tools that we have at our disposal. So if you're an installing contractor, it may be that, you know, we don't use the same tool for every application, but you have a a tool bag and you decide which tools you're going to utilize depending on the situation, the client, the environment, the site, et cetera, et cetera. And and what society is asking us to do now too is, you know, we were just talking about subsurface and turf. You know, I know New York recently passed a a statute that basically the city requires all new construction to have green roofs. Well, drip is, is tremendously well-suited to green roofs because we require lower pressure. We're not throwing water into the air where if, if you're on a skyscraper in Manhattan, the wind is going to take it and it's not even going to hit the ground. Drip is made for those applications. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing more and more on the, the governmental side of things to, to A, save water, and B, you know, uh, have these environments now where drip really starts to, to move into its own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see. I want to kind of move, move to a side. There's a couple buzzwords as well as key components of a drip system that, that I want you to talk about. One of them is pressure. So we hear a lot of pressure and, and my experience is that it's a misinterpreted Word. I think that most people believe you must have a pressure regulator. Drip requires a pressure regulator. And I'm not going to answer for you, but I'd like to kind of hear how is pressure involved with a drip system and, and uh, what do you need well, to look out for? In the, in the early days of drip, because I remember doing the calculation, in the early days of drip, the pressure would actually determine how much water came out of the emitter. In other words, if you had the same emitter and one emitter was getting 20 PSI and the other emitter was getting 40 there would be a different amount of water coming out of each emitter. Okay. So we used what to year, do, what, about what year was this when, when drip worked that way? About 300 BC. No, <laughs> it was, it was well, actually, it still does. If you buy yeah. It was from, you know, the box store. That's true. That's true. But, but basically that was when I first started using drip in the early eighties, that was the case. It was an even inline drip was not. And then we, then they came out with a device, a diaphragm inside, which allowed the, the emitter to be what we call pressure compensating. And you'll hear that term used a lot, PC, pressure compensating. Pressure compensating, means, right. right. So that's a, that is a key buzzword, pressure compensating emitter. Exactly. Right. And I would never, if I was, a, if I was an end user, if I was a homeowner, if I was anybody working on, a, on a, any type of site, I would personally never use anything that wasn't pressure compensating. Because it used, there used to be, when it first came out, there was a, there was a price variation that maybe you could have used non-pressure compensating because it was least less expensive but the price differential between them today is negligible so realistically you, mm-hmm. i think the only thing you do okay. find out there is so what, what, what are they and how does it what is the benefit what does it do well what it does is now there's a device built into the emitter that basically makes sure that whatever the pressure is in our case between 6 and 60 psi the same amount of water will come out of each emitter okay but in the old days, what used to happen was we used to design the system 
so there would be no more than a 10% variation in pressure mm. so that we would keep the, 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 the variation in flows very close so that, yes, it was still saving water, it was still doing a good job, but it wasn't quite as uniform as it is today. So we would actually have to use pressure regulators of different PSIs to determine how much water was realistically going to come out of the system, going to come out of the emitters. That's why you have 15 PSI, 25 PSI, 35 PSI, 45 PSI, the whole range of different flow rates or PSI outputs out of regulators. Today, to me, the pressure regulator acts as an insurance policy. You know, one of the things is as you get to the high, high end of a range on an emitter, the diaphragm on the high end of the pressure range on an emitter, the pressure has a, has a tendency to start to close down the diaphragm and could lead to a situation where no water comes out. And mm. if that's the case, that happens up at typically the very high end range of the, of the emitter, in our case, 70, 80 PSI. So what we want to do is we don't want that pressure up at that point. You know, the tubing is rated for 70 PSI, for instance. The fittings, believe it or not, nowadays, even though you hand push them on, the fittings are rated at over 100 easily. Oh, so, really? Yes. It's funny. We finally did some, some, wow. uh, some burst tests, tests on them, and they were up around 150 PSI. No kidding. Which people don't believe, but it's true. So, okay. so I'm, not as, I'm not as worried anymore about, about blowing off fittings and stuff like that. I am worried about if I do spike up at 70, 80 PSI, all of a sudden I've got emitters that are shutting down and not operating at that pressure. Right, right. So, so that's why we, yeah. So yes, we, use it as a, we use it sort of like a pressure relief valve on a pump. It's just, okay. it should hopefully never work, but it's there in case we get a high pressure. Right. Your average residential application, you know, 60 to 70 PSI at the source is probably average, sometimes higher, oftentimes lower. You know, by the time you go through your water meter and your backflow and your main line and your valve, you've got 10 to 15 or so PSI loss, you know, that even if you started at 70, you won't be at 70 by the time you're at the emitter. Exactly. Exactly. And so I guess you see drip zone kits being sold and, you know, a drip zone kit from what I understand is a valve a filter and a pressure regulator, you know, I think a lot of times they're being used when they don't necessarily have to, or somebody bought a 25 PSI regulator, didn't realize that it was required. And, you know, maybe they're asking how come I, these emitters aren't working? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, and it's, it's, you know, a lot of the devices that we're using today are more insurance policies than anything else. Even you mentioned the filter, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the filter was very important when we first started putting drip in the country because uh, what, ha what happened is, is in, you, everybody thinks potable water is perfectly clean. However, you know, when we start using higher flows in an area, if there's a system that's on or several systems that are on, higher flows come up, any scale that's on the inside of that pipe sometimes breaks off and comes on downstream. We found that when drip was first introduced in the U.S., Many times, after a few weeks, all of a sudden, some emitters would start to shut down. And it was because they were physically getting clogged with debris mm. coming on down to our clean, potable water. Right. So even if it wasn't coming off of a lake or a secondary source, which could have contaminants, there were contaminants breaking off of the domestic water line. Right. And there is, there is stuff in there that, that mm. we don't see every day, but is there. So what happened to us is the decision was made, hey, we need to filter the water. Okay. Now, 
We used to get calls occasionally for clogging when we first started. But nowadays, like for instance, with Netafin, we have a, cl- a self-cleaning feature, right? That if any debris does get into the emitter, the emitter, that same diaphragm that acts for the pressure compensation will also open up and flush extra water through and clean itself out. And yeah, for those who have a drip system, if they see water shooting out about two, three inches out of the emitter, out of the hole in the tubing, mm-hmm. basically what it's doing is it's cleaning itself out. And I after see. it's done cleaning itself, it'll drop back down to just a drop, a drip. So, so it used to be that I'd get calls for clogging. I'll be honest with you, I've moved 300 million feet in the Northeast. I don't get calls anymore for clogging. I really don't. And, yeah. and it's just, you know, so, so it's one of those things that, yes, a filter's good, especially if, some, if it's some, let's say somebody breaks a pipe down the street and they do a repair, there's going to be a, a chunk of dirty stuff heading your way, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it'll protect your system from that. But as to the necessity of it nowadays, it's less and less, but it's, again, there as an insurance policy. Okay. Okay. Well, these are all, you know, I would say pieces of technology. They may not be electrical technology, but it's mechanical and and hydraulic technology that's been developed over the years. So we've already talked about pressure compensating emitters, talked about pressure regulators on the system. You just covered filters. One of the other things I have here that we hear a lot of is, is a check valve an in, Mm -hmm. you know, emitter within a check valve. And so I'd like to just kind of understand what the heck is a check valve in an emitter and why okay. should we care? <laughs> well, as one. The, the example I start with is, is many years ago, sprinkler heads, right? Let's say you had, a, had a, a little bit of a hillside or an elevation difference in your yard and you had some sprinklers that were up high on one side, down lower on the other side. And they were all part of the same section or zone. When you used to turn off the zone, water would in that pipe would come back down the hill and would sort of come out of the low sprinkler head. We call it low head drainage, where basically a puddle would be created down by the sprinkler that was down at the lowest spot because the water in the pipes would come back. So the way manufacturers took care of that issue is they put a check feature in the bottom of each sprinkler head so that what happens is when the sprinklers turn off, when the pressure drops down under 2 PSI or under 5 PSI, some number like that, the check feature would kick in and it would seal off the head so that it would hold the water in the pipe so that it wouldn't drain back and puddle down at the low end. But we saw the same thing with drift. The original drift, there was no feet. There, you know, water would continue to come out of the emitter even after you turned off the, the valve because there was still a little bit of water in the pipe. If there's any elevation difference, it would move down to the low end of the, of the tubing and it would come out of the emitters there. It would do two things. It would have more water down at the low end so we'd have more water in one spot than we wanted. The other thing that it did is when you have water run out of a pipe with tubing with, with emitters in it, tubing with emitters in it, a vacuum is created. Mm. And it starts to pull, and people don't realize this, water can move in two directions through an emitter. It can go from the inside out, but it can also go from the outside in. So what happens is, is as you create a vacuum, right, if you're sucking on a straw and you have a pathway going through the emitter to the outside, what's it going to do? It's going to start sucking in water from outside. It's going to start sucking dirty water back into the tube. Got it. And when you turn it back on, now you're going to have dirty water in there, and you're going to worry about clogging or et cetera. So we used to always do on, the, on these systems, we used to put in what we call an air vacuum relief valve, a little small poppet type device that would basically, when you created a vacuum in the tubing, it would open up and let air in 
mm. so that it didn't pull dirty water back Got into us. the You're tubing. giving air its pathway rather right. than it taking a pathway through the emitter. It's taking a pathway from the air relief from above. Exactly. And then when you turn it on, it will allow air out quickly because everybody loves it. I love, I love when people say, I love hearing when the drip comes on because I hear the air coming out of the emitters. Right? Well, that tells me it's taking a while to fill that up with water. So if you can picture a line that's several hundred feet long and the, the emitters at the very beginning of it get water right away and they start working, but it takes five minutes to get the air out of the tubing, the last emitter turns on five minutes later, that's not too uniform. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that, that's not great. So what we do is we put, a, we put a, first that air vacuum relief on. It lets air out when water first comes into the tubing, lets it out, come out quickly, so it fills that tubing up quickly. And we have a fairly uniform time when each emitter turns on. So that device was very important. Okay? And we also had an auto flush because if any dirt did get into the tubing, there was an auto flush valve that when it first turned on, that auto flush would open up and would dump about one, two gallons, and any dirt in it would be dumped with it. Okay. Is that still recommended today? Do you still recommend auto flush? Well, the auto flush, if we're using the the new tubing with the check valve, the check feature, then I don't. Because realistically, if you think about it, the new, well, let me explain the new tubing. The new tubing has a check feature built in. It's going to hold, depending on the tubing you use, it's going to hold either four and a half foot of elevation or eight and a half foot of elevation. So what happens is when when the zone shuts off, the zone stays full of water. The lines stay full. Nothing drains out. And by the way, just as a note for you, this is a, this is a geeky nerd, nice. nerd point. There's, for every 100 feet of our tubing, it holds 1.3 gallons of water. So uh-huh. if you have 1,000 feet in volume, just, uh, in just, in just volume, right inside the tube, got it. Right inside the tube. So 1,000 feet would be 13 gallons. Okay, now that's not much. But if you turn it on 100 times a year, right? <laughs> That's 1,300 gallons that you could save by simply having a check feature and the water's not coming out. Right. It would have been flushing out the every flush time. valve. Right. Exactly. Time. Yep. So that's, that's always, that, that's, I always like that. That's one hmm. of my geeky little, uh, little things. But anyway, yeah. so what happened was when the zone shuts down, they all shut off at the same time because the pressure drops down below. Our, ours kick in at 2 PSI typically. Drops down below 2 PSI. They all kick in holds water in the tubing, the water is not going to come out, right? So therefore, the auto flush isn't needed because if you, can, if you think about it, if you're in a part of the country that your system's on all year round, right, it's going to stay full of water. It's never going to re- reset the flush valve. That flush valve will operate once the first time you turn it on, and that's it. So mm-hmm. the other times are if, if we do winterization, you know, you'll have it turn on once a year. So what I recommend instead of an auto flush valve out there nowadays, is that basically you put in a manual flush valve, in other words, a little ball valve at the far end of the zone, so that if you ever want some help winterizing it or if you ever do have a line that broke and you repaired it and you want to flush some water out, you can do that. Got okay. So the, yep. so the check features are pretty nice. The drawback of the check features are this. They generally, like for instance, ours is what we call an atmospheric check. It needs one atmosphere to open, which is 14.7 PSI at sea level, right? So we need one atmosphere for the thing to open. So I always say, tell people you need 15. So it will stay no up to 15 gallons a minute, excuse me, 15, excuse me, 15 PSI, it will stay closed. At 15 PSI, it'll open and work fine. So it'll either work or not work. It's not going to be halfway, right? 
So okay. some people, especially those who still like to use 25 for 50, even 15 PSI regulators, guess what? You're not going to go too far before the pressure drops off in your zone and you're going to have emitters that are not turning on because they've got to check. Got it. Got it. So it's just, it takes a little bit more planning on the part of the contractor. I always recommend that here's a, here's a tool suggestion for all you contractors. I always recommend that you have a combination key for the drip tubing, uh, put a zero to 30 pressure gauge on it. And if you ever have a problem with stuff that you know is a check valve, cut between the two emitters, hook it up, turn it on and see what the pressure is at the emitter and make sure that meets the requirement of the, of the emitter to open. I see. Okay. Right. Then where you're testing the pressure right at the spot where you're having the right. issue to know. Yeah, yep. Good call. Every, every contractor tells me they got great pressure. And Maybe I ask, we where make is it? That. <laughs> well, we, we do make the components for it. We sell them. It's just, that's yeah, what I mean. Just that China. kit, you plug China. it in. Right. So, you know, we've been chatting here for a while and I want to talk about, want to wrap up by sort of talking about some of the common problems and or myths. So one of the things that, you know, I've heard when talking to other contractors, some guys, you know, maybe don't want to use it because they can't tell if it's working or the homeowner says, I can't tell if this is working. So what are some ways to, you know, get around that question? Okay. First is I always ask most of the time, if you have a traditional irrigation system overhead, right? When are they running? it? They're usually running it in the middle of the night, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I don't know too many homeowners that are up at 3 a.m. to watch to make sure that the sprinklers were working right. OK. What happens is most of the time what generates a call to a contractor about an issue is that they see that there's some stress out there, either on the turf and the lawn or they got some plant material that's 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 losing it, dropping leaves, whatever. And they or it's very dry, they, they think. And, and so that that's what drives a call and says, my system's not working right, right? Now, granted, the contractor or even the homeowner can turn his system on and see if the sprinklers are covering the area. They can't do the same thing with drip. They won't see it. So there are a couple of things. One is we can put, we have these devices called operation devices. Mm-hmm. It's a, basically, a, it plugs into your drip tubing. It's a flag that when it, the drip zone turns on, the flag opens. And when the drip zone turns off, the flag drops and okay. it lets you know that it's running. Now, the other thing that I've seen, uh, this actually was an idea that was developed by a guy I worked with many, many years ago. He actually had his drip system set up and he put a piece of spaghetti tubing from the drip to, a, to an emitter and it, it basically filled his dog's water dish every day. <laughs> nice. Right? So the joke was if the dog died, we knew the system wasn't working. But but basically, uh, we use the same thing. I've seen people do the same thing. They'll take, we actually have a device that actually gives you a little spray when it's working too. And what they'll do is they'll put it under a roadie or something next to the steps, the front steps, and the homeowner comes out during the morning. He sees that the the bottom of the roadie is all nice and wet. He knows. Right. You just need work. some way of visual indication. I mean, right. just sum that up. You just, since you can't see it, you need to see it. So any way that you can visually, you know, make sure that it was watering is. But but the way the, the big thing I recommend today, especially if you're going to do a subsurface turf job, is this: put in a flow. And most of our controllers have the ability to measure flow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So get a put a put a water meter in there, or put a flow sensor in there, whichever. Have it tied into a smart controller and have it measure your flow. And what you do is when you first put the system in, you measure the flow for each zone. Let's say zone one is 10 gallons a minute. 
zone two was 7.5, whatever. You keep track of those numbers. And if the homeowner feels that there's an issue, you go take a look at the flow for that particular zone and you look at, you turn it on, you take a look, if it matches, you know that virtually everything's working as far as you can tell. Okay. If it's too high, you know you've got a break. If the flow goes up, you know you have probably have a break in a pipe out there. If mm-hmm. it's too low, then you worry about clogging or some other issue. So, but there, but and especially commercial, you know, and, uh, and nowadays, as you know, Andy, these control systems, they will actually let you know if there's an over or under condition. Right. Yep. Yep. And I think there's some, uh, I'm experimenting with one right now at my house. I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but you can put devices right on the home main water supply right before it goes through the meter. And you can monitor every drop of water that's running through the house and where it goes and at what time it was being used. And I've, like I said, I'm experimenting with one right now. And if I get up to use the bathroom at three o'clock in the morning, I will see 1.4 gallons when I flush the toilet and it will record 1.4 gallons. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Well, as you get older, Andy, you'll be going to the to the uh, bathroom more often. <laughs> oh, awesome! I'm just, just give me something to look forward to. <laughs> uh, what um, are there any other common myths that you hear talked about that you think would be interesting for other people to know that aren't necessarily myths, well, or they or they are myths? They're not fact or truths. Uh, well, the big one, of course, is, as you mentioned, is I don't see it running. I don't know if it's running. Right. On the flip side. Sometimes that's not a bad thing. You know, one of the places that drip is very, very well received at is in areas that you worry about vandalism because it is buried. It's out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so while, you know, while sprinklers, you can turn on and, and visually check right away. The, the drip is underground. You don't see it there. Now, I know in certain cities that have trouble with uh, children vandalizing ball fields, taking the sprinklers, they switched over to drip. And they've been, been been feeling well because they don't have to replace the heads all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other big ones is it takes a lot more maintenance. In reality, the maintenance on a drip system actually goes down because we don't have the moving parts to operate like a like a sprinkler. We don't have a sprinkler that can get hit by a mower. We don't have right. a, you know, or a dog tearing it up or whatever, right? Once it's buried underground and, and you've gone through that first season, basically that drip, you can plan. You can plan on getting many, many years of, of operation out of that trip. The only other thing you have to watch out for is, you know, when your wife wants a new pre-installed mm-hmm. uh, shovel blight, right? Yeah, shovel yeah. blight. And I always refer to it. You know, that's why. Like for instance, a good example is a lot of people will say, "Oh, just take that inline tubing and wrap it around the tree four times, and you'll put extra water down for that tree." Right? I hate that. You know, even though I'm very appreciative of the fact that I've got a daughter at NYU and it's nice to sell extra tubing, you know, but, yeah. uh, but what happens is to me, it becomes a shovel mat. You know, you put four rows of tubing in tight proximity, people are going to nail it. Mm-hmm. Right? What I'd rather you do is if you, if you wrap around once, or even if you just go by the tree with two rows of tubing on those two rows of two, two rows of tubing, plug on some point source emitters, put right. like four, four evenly placed around the tree put on put, put them on and you've added extra water for that particular tree right right and that is important to know that you can punch in emitters so if somebody's watering let's say a bed that's covering you know lots of different plant types they could use a 0.4 or a 0.6 on 12 or 18 inch spacing but if there's plants that are going to require more instead of running more rows of tubing they can just add on some extra pressure compensating you know emitters right into the tubing 
you know, and, I, and that's the nice thing. The nice thing about Drip and, and one of the benefits of Drip versus an overhead system is Drip is a system you can actually shape where the water goes. If you have particular plants in a bed that require more water than the others, you can actually give them more. An overhead system, you really can't do that. You can't say, I just want this sprinkler to hit that tree, yeah. but hit that tree less. You know, yeah. that just doesn't happen. So. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm, you know, this has been so fascinating. I know that we've kept everyone's attention. They're just, they're, they're just glued to their, to I'm their sure. speaker, their headphones right now. Cause it's so fascinating. No, I'm kidding, but not kidding. Cause it is fascinating, but our, this has been well, awesome. You know, we've been really getting into the, into the weeds and, you know, you do this every day and teach classes. So you could just talk for hours about the, the nerdy science of drip irrigation. Well, the, the, the one thing I do though, is I have my soapbox and I think for us as an industry, you know, one of the things that we have to stress out there, you know, there's a big debate today about global, you know, global change, whether it be warming, whether it be climate change, whatever, right? And, you know, one of the things that, that, that I hear all the time is, you know, a lot of people knock irrigation down because they feel it wastes water, right? My thing is this, is one of the big mitigating mitigators for carbon in the air is plant material. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we're part of that industry that, that's, that's growing stuff. And if we're going to tackle the issue of climate change uh, and excess, car, you know, greenhouse gases, we're going to need to pull CO2 out of the air. And it doesn't just fall out of the air on its own. We're going to have to plant a lot of trees, a lot of turf, a lot of plant material. And without us, I always say this, without us, green is brown. Yeah. And realistically, we can be part of that solution and we need to be. Awesome. Yeah. Great, great point. I think we should all be, all be thinking of that, especially those that work on commercial projects and maybe projects that, that, you know, want to go green. We need to back ourselves up and be smart irrigators, right? So we're not spraying water all over the sidewalks and the streets and all those things that give this industry a bad name. We are, we are here, like you said, to keep the plants alive. So. And I'm sure you and others are going to be on, on the blog talking about control systems, talking about all the different things that are part of this, you know, part and parcel right. of the solution. And that's all these tools. Do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank right. you for inviting me. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so uh, much. And, and uh, if somebody uh, wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to, to uh, contact you? My email is probably best. It's mm-hmm. A-R-T dot Elmers, E-L-M-E-R-S at Netafim. And that's N is in Nancy, E is in Edward, T is in Tom. A is in Alvin, F is in Frank, I is in Ivory, M is in Mary, dot com. You can also go to www.netafimusa.com, and that's our website with a lot of information and, and testimonials, et cetera, that'll hopefully answer some of your questions. If, if not, give me, a, give me an email. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks so much, Art, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Take care, Andy. Bye-bye. All right, guys, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Sprinkler Nerd podcast. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed this episode with one of the leaders in drip irrigation and that you are able to use some of this information in your day-to-day work. If you want to ask any questions about this episode or talk about drip irrigation more, you can visit sprinklernerd.com where you can find all the links to our social media groups. Also, feel free to head over to iTunes and leave us a comment. This is a young podcast, and I look forward to reading and responding to all your feedback and comments. Thanks so much, guys, and until the next episode, happy sprinkling, and we'll talk to you soon.